The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 15. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were serving him. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So my dad had an uncle, Uncle Roy, who is legendary in our family. He was one of those guys that caused you to shake your head and say, like, there's no one quite like him. My extended family still lasts for the time that he gave each of his nephews and nieces a bound, handwritten copy of his poems, all written under the pen name Alden Vane Parks. I guess that just sounds more artistic than Roy Redberg. Or the Christmas that he, um, that if one of the family members unwrapped a present from Uncle Roy and they found a used bowling trophy with someone else's name on it. See, Uncle Roy knew he liked bowling, and when he was at Goodwill and saw a bowling trophy, he realized he'd found the perfect Christmas gift. You know, sometimes we use that phrase, there's no one quite like him, to describe someone who is puzzling or perplexing or just odd. But I think sometimes we use that same phrase when someone amazes us. The the tone is a little different because it's filled with affection and even adoration. So when I think about an old friend of mine named Ken... And the way he tirelessly serves people, the many unknown sacrifices he makes to help others, I think, you know, there's there's no one quite like him. But I think about him, and I say that about him with great affection, and I aspire to be like him. This morning, we're starting a study of the Gospel of Mark, which will last until the summer, so 17 weeks in total. And we're going to learn many things together, but my great desire is that you will see Jesus with fresh eyes, that we'll be together amazed at his love and compassion, awed by his power and majesty. My prayer is that we'll see that there is no one like him, not even close, that because he is both the son of God and the son of man, that he is the suffering servant and the sovereign king, and that he willingly lays down his life for us, that as we see this, our hearts will be filled with affection for him, and we will aspire to know him intimately and love him fiercely. I fear many of us have grown comfortable in our understanding of Jesus. We're like, a person that has built their home on the edge of the Grand Canyon and what used to amaze us now seems commonplace. We've grown accustomed to the beauty and glory in front of us. But in the study of, of the Gospel of Mark, my goal is to reintroduce you to Jesus to both remind you of details you've forgotten and reveal details you've never noticed. And so as I My hope is that as you see Jesus clearly, whether for the first time or for the first time in a long time, that it will spark an affection for Jesus that becomes a consuming fire in your heart so that you burn with passion for him. And before we dive into Mark 1 this morning, I want to give you a few moments to pray. Okay, here's what I want you to ask God. God, will you help me see Jesus with fresh eyes? Will you clear away the the sinful cataracts that cause me to miss his glory and grace? Will you spark a flame of undying affection for Jesus in my heart? So take just a few moments right now to quietly pray that God will work in you as we study and listen to his word.
Father, open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Let us gaze upon your beauty in Jesus Christ. And may seeing him cause our hearts to burn within us. Amen. Well, we're introduced to Jesus in Mark's gospel with a clear, straightforward, succinct statement about his identity. Notice this, Mark doesn't waste time with preliminaries. He jumps right in. He has written this gospel account to tell everyone the good news about Jesus, who is the Messiah, the very Son of God. So look at verse 1. The beginning of the gospel, or simply the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. So Mark's goal in writing this is not to present every detail of Jesus' life and ministry. Notice he jumps right in. Like there's no mention of Jesus' childhood or his birth. He intends to do this. He wants to demonstrate to you as a reader that Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited deliverer who will defeat evil and reign over a renewed universe. So at the time where Mark's story, the time in history where Mark's story begins... The Jewish religious leaders have a very specific idea about what the Messiah will be like. Okay, so they are under Roman occupation. Rome has conquered them and they're sort of living there with Roman soldiers marching through the streets and a Roman governor. And so they are anticipating a king who is going to rise up and he's going to lead Israel out of rebellion to the Roman Empire. So their expectation is for the Messiah to be a dynamic national and political figure. So in other words, this is what they want. They want a king just like all the other kings and pharaohs and Caesars around them, just better than them, so he can defeat them. But Mark is determined here to help them see how their perspective is wrong. They're missing really the beauty and glory and wonder of the Messiah. That Jesus is not going to be a king like other kings. He's going to be unlike other kings. This is a new type of king, a much greater king. And so from the very beginning, Jesus defies the expectations of Israel. And so as we look at chapter 1, I want you to see his uniqueness. How how he's a unique king. And this really takes them by surprise. Here's the first thing I want you to see. The king comes in an unexpected way. So the king comes in an unexpected way. So imagine expectations for the Messiah's coming. They're at an all-time high. But the expectations, they're they're fueled partly by the Old Testament scriptures and partly by all of the sort of growing desires and expectations and ideas that have, have developed around the teaching for hundreds of years. But they really only focus on one aspect of the Old Testament promises of the Messiah. They focus on the part that, that we would focus on. They, they focus on the Messiah's victory and his coming reign. They, they look at how there are promises of freedom and restoration under his care, how, how there's this wonderful inheritance they're going to receive as his people. But what they fail to do is they fail to see all of the passages about his suffering and death. They, they don't account for all the prophetic passages that say the Messiah is actually going to be pierced and crushed and broken. So as Mark, as he writes this good news about Jesus, he doesn't focus very much on these sort of triumphant themes of his reign, though they're in there. He spends much more time focusing on what they've missed, which is that the Messiah came to suffer and die for sinners. That the glorious and triumphant reign of the Messiah actually comes through his death. So in his introduction to the life of Jesus, Mark is going to show in these first, particularly the first 15 verses, how Jesus is a king. But all of those sort of expectations of a king, all of sort of the trappings of a king, he flips them upside down. They don't look at all like they would normally look. Okay, so first we see here is Herald, the Herald of the King. So the Herald for Jesus is John the Baptist. So I want you to think about maybe stories you read in history or literature of a king. And this is how we expect a king to enter a city. First come like the slaves and the servants and the soldiers, right? They're, they're sort of clearing the way for the king. They're dressed in a specific way that marked them out. Maybe they're holding flags or banners of the king. And following all of that comes one man, and he is, I mean, he is dressed 
in sort of a way that shouts, he is important. And he stops and he lifts up this very sort of triumphant, sonorous voice. And he says as loud as he can, like, hail, the king is coming. He's announcing the arrival of the king. That's what we expect from a herald. Okay, now... This is the herald of the Messiah. So that means it should be even better than that, right? So if the normal herald looks very majestic and has an amazing voice, the herald of the Messiah should look even more majestic, right? And he should have even bigger voice and should make even a bigger spectacle of of sort of royal power and authority. But John looks nothing like that. John lives in the wilderness. He dresses like a caveman and his diet is locusts and wild honey. That sounds horrible. But here's what you need to understand about John's ministry. It's designed to show people that they are looking for the wrong kind of salvation in the religious system of their day. It's designed to show people they are looking for the wrong kind of salvation as they look to Jerusalem and the religious leaders. So we see in verses 2 and 3 that John's coming is the... It's, It's the fulfillment of a number of prophecies. Prophecies of the herald who will cry out in front of the messianic king. But he he does this in the wilderness for a specific reason. He is calling people away from the religious center in Jerusalem to something different. Something both old and new. He's calling them to return to the life of faith that was characterized by God's people when they left Egypt. And they wandered in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. But he's also calling them to something new. To turning to the coming Messiah. And his message is one in verse 4 of repentance and baptism. Look at verse 4 with me. It says, John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So they need to repent. Well, repent is simply turning. So he says you're, you need to turn from wrong thinking and you're trusting the wrong thing. Now we will learn this as we go through the Gospels, but the religious leaders in Jerusalem, they are very focused on human traditions. So around God's teaching sort of gathered all of these decades and centuries of human traditions. And the focus for the religious leaders at that time was so much on keeping their traditions. And in doing this, they substituted human effort for faith. And this is how they turned away from God's message, which is one of life through faith. And so here's John out in the wilderness. He's calling people to leave Jerusalem, to come out in the wilderness. And he says, listen, you're going the wrong way up there. You're thinking the wrong thing. You don't understand God or his grace or his salvation. You don't understand yourself and your sin. You, you are going the wrong way. Now, this, this turning from the wrong thinking is pictured in baptism in the Jordan River. Now, at the time of John, like there really was no such thing as baptism. We don't find any record of baptism prior to all of a sudden it appears right here in John. Clearly, after this, it became significant to Christianity, but this is the first of it. Where does this come from? So, so we should ask ourselves, where have we seen something similar in the Old Testament? Where have we seen someone dunked in the Jordan River? And the answer is we see it once in the book of Kings. There's a man named Naaman who's a a general, a Gentile general who contracts a skin disease, a fatal skin disease called leprosy. And he has no hope for being healed. And he hears about the God of Israel and he comes, he finds the prophet Elisha and he says, I've heard your God might be able to heal me. And Elisha says, actually doesn't say, he has his servant say, go down to Jordan River and dunk yourself in there. And Naaman, he wrestles with arrogance and pride, and he literally says, we have nicer rivers where I'm from. I'm not going to do this. And one of his servants convinced him, like, why wouldn't you try? You have no hope. And so he humbles himself, and he enters the muddy water of the Jordan River, and he dunks himself, and he comes out, and he is healed. And so here is what John is saying to the Jewish people. You are all Naamans. You are leprous Gentiles. Cut off from God without hope. But if you will humble yourself and repent, then God will save you. Now this 
shouldn't be surprising that John targets institutionalized Judaism. That he's really focused on calling people away from that, turning from that. Because it's, it's, it's seen even in the way he dresses. Like he's not making a fashion statement in the way he dresses. So it says in verse 6, a camel hair garment, a leather belt around his waist. It's not a fashion statement. That's not why it's in there. It's because someone in the past, a prophet in the Old Testament named Elijah, dressed the same way. And so John, by dressing this way and being in the wilderness, is saying, I'm Elijah, the, the new Elijah, the prophesied Elijah. But specifically this, Elijah's ministry was about confronting the wicked rulers of his day. So the religious and state rulers in Elijah's day were evil. They were like extraordinarily evil. And so Elijah was often rebuking them and standing against them. And so here comes John. And he's dressed the same way. And so they should have understood, like, maybe he's doing the same thing. He's confronting the false teaching and calling people away from that to simple faith in God. So he baptizes them with water. This is a sign that they need to be cleansed from their sin. But he says, you have a deeper need. You have a need for internal cleansing. Look at verse 8. He says, I baptize you with water. Or I immerse you, is literally, I immerse you in the water, I dunk you in the water, but he, the Messiah, is going to immerse you, baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He says, listen, when, when the Messiah comes, what I'm telling you about, he comes with the Holy Spirit, and he has the power to wash you inside. I mean, I can dunk you outside, he can wash you inside. The Spirit can cleanse the deepest part of our hearts. He can remove the shame that's so deep, so corrosive, that even though we never mention it, it's always there. Never far from our thoughts. So John says the Messiah is coming, and he will bring the deep, soul-cleansing spirit with him. So not only is John an unusual herald, but the coronation of Jesus as king looks nothing like normal royal ceremonies. Look at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Why does Jesus get baptized? In fact, in another gospel, John asks the same question. Like, why are you getting baptized? I should be baptized by you. Jesus has never sinned, yet... Look at what he does. He chooses to be baptized to identify with sinners. As Jesus enters the water, we see how he will descend down into death in the place of sinners. And we rise with him to life through resurrection. Then Jesus, as he comes out of the water in verse 10, it says, The Spirit descends on him like a dove. This detail points us back to the story of creation where we're told the Spirit of God hovers over the waters. So Jesus emerges from the depths of the water as a new Adam, as the first of a brand new creation. And this symbolic picture assures us that one day Jesus will make all things new. That we who follow him will experience the rebirth of God's world without sin and suffering. But notice what happens when Jesus exits the water. A voice from heaven, verse 11 But before the voice speaks, it says the heavens are torn open, verse 10. They're torn open. What's it saying? It's saying through Jesus, heaven is now accessible to us. It wasn't before. Like our sins cut us off from God. They alienate us from him. This is pictured with the angel at the edge of the garden saying you can't go back in there. You lost access, but Jesus comes to open heaven. The same phrase, torn open, is used one other time in Mark's gospel. At the very end, it says when Jesus dies, the veil, the big heavy curtain in the temple that kept people out of the the presence of God, it's torn open. It's teaching the same thing. The same picture is reinforced that Jesus makes a way for us to go to God, that the front door of heaven now stands open because of Jesus. And then God speaks, verse 11. 
He speaks of his joy and delight in his son. Do you realize, Christian, that this very same statement is made of you because of your union with Christ? So Jesus enters the water in our place. And so we exit the water with him. And God looks upon us and says, you are beloved I am delighted with you. That God says that each day to you if you're a Christian. That in spite of your weakness and failure, God is delighted with you. I mean, how many of us believe that? Because our sin has been paid for and the righteousness of Jesus belongs to you. You please God, Christian. That he is eternally happy with you. I think if we would truly and deeply believe this, it would transform our lives. That God looks at us each day and because he sees us united with Jesus, he says, you delight me. Jesus is not concerned as king with defeating Rome. This is what everyone is hoping for. Notice his sights are set on a far more powerful enemy. He has come to defeat and destroy the kingdom of Satan. So immediately upon his coronation as king, the spirit leads him out into the wilderness to do battle. Verse 12. Immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. So in the wilderness, Jesus does what Israel could not do. He resists temptation. He shows that Satan's greatest schemes have no power over him. And though the final defeat of Satan is still to come, the battle is over because Jesus refuses to give in to temptation. He shows he is more powerful than sin and that nothing stops him. Now, Mark includes this curious detail that's omitted by Matthew, even though Matthew has a much longer um, account of Jesus' temptation. Mark notes the presence of wild animals and angels at Christ's temptation, verse 13. These details actually remind us of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So there, Adam and Eve were in the presence of animals. And before the angel has barred the entrance to the garden, and there Satan tempts them to sin. And unlike Jesus, they give in. And sin's curse then enters creation, and all of us are cast under its dominion And this is what Mark is showing us. Jesus stands where Adam fell. Jesus wins where Adam lost. And this gives us confidence that one day we will return to Eden. Free from the effects of sin and death. I think Christ's victory over Satan here in the presence of angels and wild animals... I think this would have been a unique help to the first Christians. So Mark's gospel was written in the late 50s, early 60s AD. Right, it would have been written and finished right as Nero's persecution of the Christians intensified. And so these first Christians, many of them are who are being hauled into the Colosseum where they are dressed in sort of animal skins and told if you do not recant Jesus Christ, if you do not deny him, we will set animals loose to devour you. Many of them would have just read Mark's gospel and heard that Jesus, in the presence of wild animals, he stood against temptation and it would have given them the strength to stand in the face of temptation themselves. You see, the real enemy of God is not Rome. It's sin and Satan. And that means the coming of the Messiah this is about something so much bigger than political freedom. And this is, this is what some of what Mark is trying and John the Baptist is trying, Jesus is trying to get the people to see. Like, your vision is way too small. Like, you think this is about a Roman soldier walking down your street? You think this is about your circumstances? Like, this is way bigger than that. Like, this is way bigger than that. See, see, we think our biggest issue often is is something outside of us. And in this way, we're a lot like these 
Jewish leaders in this day, we think, well, this is the, God, if you would just change this. If you would just change this situation I'm in. If you would just alter my circumstances. This is what I desperately need. And Jesus comes and shows us that our biggest issue is not something external, it's something internal. That our biggest enemy actually is inside us. It is our desire to sin. It's our weakness when we're tempted. That's the enemy that Jesus came to defeat. Listen, your single biggest problem in your life is inside you, not outside of you. But Jesus has the power to defeat and give you victory over what actually plagues you. After defeating Satan in the wilderness, Jesus issues a royal decree. Look what he says in verse 14. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So we have here the first sign that following Jesus as your king can put a person at odds with other powers. So John the Baptist, what has he done? He has recognized Jesus as Messiah. He has proclaimed him as the Messiah. He has encouraged people, repent and trust in Jesus, follow him. And what happens? He's arrested. And we know he will soon be killed. And so we, we just need to understand this, like that the gospel is not always well received, especially by those who have some measure of power and influence. Because the gospel demands wholehearted allegiance to Jesus as Lord. So, so what do you think happens when, when following Jesus conflicts with the demands of the state? Well, Christians say, well, I follow Jesus. So when the state says you, you must sin or you must not do what Jesus says or you need, your allegiance should be primarily to us, a Christian says, no, my first and primary allegiance is to Jesus. A Christian is not easily controlled by these lower powers. And this can bring conflict. But Jesus says, this is good news. And here's the good news that the conquering king, the invading army, is at the door. That doesn't seem like very good news, does it? Imagine going home this afternoon, turning on the TV, and there's a special news bulletin that says, there's an army invading us. Now we're Americans, we'd be like, bring it on. Okay. But generally, you're in a country, there's an invading army, and someone says, I've got good news, they're coming today, they're invading. You're not like that, and you're like, that's not good news, buddy. Well, why is this good news? Because this king says, if you will just simply pledge your allegiance to me, I not only will promise you safety, I promise you blessing. I'm coming to liberate you. I'm coming to receive you as my own. Like his decree is one of grace and mercy to those who are penitent. So the religious leaders of Jesus' time, they're desperate for the, the messianic king's arrival, but then when he comes, they totally miss it. In fact, not only do they miss it, we'll see by the end of Mark's gospel, they're the ones who conspire to kill Jesus. See, they want a king who will liberate his people through military might. And what they get is a king who suffers and dies for his people to be saved from sin and death. Here's another way we see the uniqueness of Jesus in these verses. That he chooses, the king chooses an uneducated court. So here's a question. Okay, the king is coming, John. Jesus is here. Jesus says, you're, okay, you're the king, Jesus. Who are you going to surround yourself with? I mean, who are you going to invite to, to sort of is your, the people around you? Who's, who's part of your inner circle? Well, I mean, certainly it's, you're going to go up to Jerusalem and you're going to find the rich suburb of Jerusalem and you're going to go find all the movers and shakers, the influential merchants, and you're going to say like, okay, I need you guys, I need your power, I need your influence. Or, or you're going to go to the temple and you're going to get the chief priests and all the other priests and probably the Sanhedrin, which is sort of the religious council, and you're going to, you're going to sort of say, hey, I, I need you guys. And that's, what was, that's what people would have thought. Like the Messiah is going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to, he's going to get them on board and they're going to see it and recognize it. But it's amazing that those who spent their lives studying the Old Testament seem to miss 
That's, that's not what God does. It's as if they read the Old Testament and forgot about the story of Rahab the harlot or Ruth the Moabitess or the book of Judges as a whole and all of these outcasts who God uses to rescue his people or even King David. I mean, King David, they would have thought, well, I, I know everything about King David. He's, like, he's, he's who we want. We love King David. We've seen another King David. Well, do you remember when King David was chosen to be king? His Samuel the prophet, he shows up at David's dad's house and he says, I need to see your sons. And Jesse, David's dad, brings all of his sons and David is the youngest and the runtiest and so he's not even invited. His dad doesn't even think about him. And so, which is shocking, you think he's a middle child. He was that forgotten, but he was the youngest. Right? He's, he's... And so Samuel looks and he sees big strapping oldest brother and God says, not him. Next strapping older brother and just keeps going down he finished all of them and he's like Jesse do you have any other sons I got one more he's the runt we'll call him that's King David he's not the one everyone would have expected see God doesn't choose those who seem impressive he doesn't need the most talented or educated so look who Jesus calls to follow him verse 16 and as he passed alongside the sea of Galilee he saw Simon and Andrew Simon's brother casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Do you know that show, The Family Feud? What are the top ten answers in this? You know, what are the top answers for this? Imagine, what are the top answers for occupations that will make up the king's court? How far down do you think you have to go to get to fishermen? Right, it would have been like soldier, maybe? Judge? priest. I mean, I think you'd go a long way. I don't think fishermen, I think we'd have gotten a big red X if somebody answered that, but look who Jesus calls. Jesus says to them, these fishermen, follow me and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat putting their nets in order. Immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Now listen, one of, John, or one of Mark's chief concerns in his gospels is going to be show us what a follower of Jesus looks like. Okay, there are a lot of people say they follow Jesus. And Mark's writing this to say, let me help you understand what that actually means. It may not mean what you think it means. And so he starts to lay the groundwork here. He'll expand on it a lot as we go through the gospel. But he starts to show us here. He shows us that following Jesus means leaving your old life behind and embracing a new way of life. And so for Simon and Andrew and James and John, meant not only leaving their job, their occupation, but their family. Following Jesus requires wholehearted commitment. Notice the word immediately, verse 18. We're going to see this, this word a lot in Mark's gospel, that the call to follow Jesus requires decisive action. You don't just sort of sit around and say, like, yeah, it sounds good. Like, it requires this decision on your part. Following Jesus changes your purpose. Jesus says, you're not going to fish for fish. In other words, you're not fishing for money. That's what fish are, right? Fish are a means to make money. He's like, you're not, you're not after that anymore. You're going to fish for men. I'm changing your purpose entirely. It's, you're no longer living for the same things other people are living for. The gospel encourages us to ask, am I following Jesus? Of course, you're here on a Sunday. You must be following Jesus. But we need to ask this question, am I a disciple? Have I left my old life behind to follow him? And so these are the questions that should continually run through your mind as we study the Gospel of Mark. So Jesus, he, he comes in this way they don't expect. He gathers this uneducated court. And here's what we find in the rest of the chapter. Now the king cares for unimpressive people. He cares for unimpressive people. So where does Mark 1 take place? Or more importantly, where does it not take place? In Jerusalem. Here's what it takes place. It takes place in Galilee, Sort of this section that's north of the Sea of Galilee that's known primarily for being a place where Gentiles live. From the very start, Jesus reaches out to those least impressive by worldly standards. But it's amazing, as he interacts with people, they see this authority in him that they don't quite understand. So he goes in the synagogue to teach, verse 21. 
They, so Jesus and his disciples, went into Capernaum, and right away he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, began to teach. They, those listening, being taught, were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority, not like the scribes. So here's how a scribe, which was just sort of a a religious instructor, would normally teach. They would often travel from town to town, show up at a synagogue, unroll the scriptures, they'd read some of what one of the prophets or Moses wrote, and then they would say this, well, rabbi whatever says it means this. And then rabbi, this other rabbi, he says it means this. And they would basically, someone said, teach with a lot of quotation marks. But Jesus shows up and he teaches in an entirely different way. He unrolls the scroll and he reads from Isaiah and he says, and here's what this means. He doesn't quote anyone. He tells them with an authority. Notice that they just startles them. And then he backs it up with these acts of authority. After teaching like that, he then looks at a man possessed by a demon and he commands the demon to leave him and the demon obeys. Now, we're not surprised by this, are we? We saw Jesus already met Satan in the wilderness and defeated him. Of course, he can kick a demon out. But imagine sitting in that synagogue this day. You're sitting there. Someone comes to town, unrolls it. He starts talking. You're like, whoa, I've never heard this. And maybe you're thinking like, should I be hearing this? And then all of a sudden he looks at a demon-possessed man and he says, get out of him and the demon flees. They're wowed by Jesus. Verse 27. They're all amazed. They begin to ask each other, I love this question, what is this? It's like they couldn't even quite form a question. (laughs) What kind of question is, what is this? It's not real clear. But that's all they had, like, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits. They obey him. So at once the news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. After he leaves the synagogue, Jesus makes his way to Peter's house. There he meets Peter's mother-in-law who is sick with a fever. So what does Jesus do? Look at verse 31. He goes to her, takes her by the hand, and he raised her up. The fever left her and she began to serve them. I thought it was such an interesting fact that is included. She began to serve them. I first read that and I thought, that's odd to include that. But here's why it's included. I think a couple reasons. One is she is healed completely and instantly. Like she doesn't need time to recuperate. So the moment Jesus heals her, she is back on her feet serving Jesus. But then here's what else we see is that she takes what is natural to her sort of domestic responsibilities, hospitality, and she just starts using them for Jesus. It doesn't appear that he gave her a sermon between the healing and her serving. She just took what was natural to her and just said, I'm going to use it for him. This reminds me of the talkative woman who became a Christian one night while Charles Spurgeon was preaching. She went up to him after the service and said, Oh, Mr. Spurgeon, Christ has changed my life and he shall never hear the end of it. Brothers and sisters, sometimes we overcomplicate things. How should I serve Jesus? I don't know. What do you like? What are you good at? Start using it for him. Like, just get up and start serving him. Like, God, why are you that way? Great, use it for him. Like, this is what happens. She, she sees, she interacts, she is changed by Jesus, and so she doesn't like say, well, I guess I've got to be a preacher now. She just says, I'm going to take what I do, and I'm going to start doing it for him. Just take the gifts and abilities God has given you and start using them for him. As word of Jesus' power spreads, more and more sick and needy people start to to go searching for him. So many, so look at how Mark describes the scene in verse 33. He says the whole town is assembled at Jesus' door. Whole town. Just, Just picture that. You know, these are the types of verses I think we often skip over. Like we read through the Bible, there's a lot of verses, and so these ones we sort of skip over. I don't think we think about them. I want you to picture in your mind a small home, there's a door, and there's a line of people. And each, of, each person in that line, they have a name, and they have a story. Like each person, they and their family, they have suffered. Probably many of them, not just for days, but for weeks, for months, for years. They have lived without hope. And Jesus, what does he do? He takes them one at a time and he receives them and he changes them. 
Now notice what Jesus does next. Verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place, and there he was praying. Simon and his companions searched for him, and when they found him, they said, Everyone is looking for you, Jesus. Jesus needs to withdraw to spend time with his Father. He needs a time of unbroken communion with God. This is one way we need to follow in his footsteps. Like, we need to slow down, step away, and spend time with our Father. And Jesus did this. Did you see this? While everyone's looking for him. In fact, you almost hear in the, you almost hear the tone of voice from the disciples as they sort of give a hint that Jesus shouldn't have been doing this because, I mean, everyone's looking for you, Jesus. Almost like, what are you, what are you doing? But Jesus knows that without this time with his father, he, he, he will not be able to give himself to the people in this way. It's easy for us to overlook the importance of prayer as we serve Jesus. Like maybe we think ministry is sort of like you can see the disciples here. It's gathering this crowd, but it's not. Maybe we even think ministry is just preaching the gospel, which is certainly a part of it, but it is prayer. It's unbroken communion with our Father. It's interesting that as the crowd gets bigger in verse 38, Jesus decides it's time to move. But Jesus continues to preach and drive out demons as he ministers throughout Galilee. I think, though, when we talk about his care for the unimpressive, we, we see it most clearly in what he does next. Look at verse 40. Then a man with leprosy came to him and on his knees begged him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he told him, be made clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Leprosy was a living death sentence. Because it was a highly contagious skin disease, once a person was diagnosed with it, they lost everything. They had to not only leave their family and their home, they had to leave society. They were not allowed to come within a certain distance of healthy people. In fact, if they saw someone healthy walking towards them, they had to cover their mouth and yell out, unclean, unclean. In other words, stay, you need to stay away from me for your own sake. They could no longer attend this temple synagogue. If a child was born, they couldn't be there when the child was dedicated, circumcised, like all of these things they lost. To be a leper was to be alone and ostracized, slowly waiting for a painful, solitary death. Now, for this leper to approach Jesus is abnormal, and most likely it would have been considered inappropriate. It's possible that people would have thrown things at this leper. So as he comes to Jesus, the crowd's parked. They don't want to be near him. Probably yelling at him, probably angry, possibly throwing things at him. He comes to Jesus. Why? Because he has no other hope. He has no other hope. And he begs Jesus to heal him, and Jesus does something unthinkable. He reaches out and touches him. He touches this man who has probably not been touched in years. I mean, it is likely this man has gone without human contact for, for the past number of years. And Jesus doesn't have to touch the leper, does he? And we know that Jesus can speak and, and he can fix him, but he does. He chooses to. Now, a leper is considered unclean, which means this, that if someone touches a leper, they're made unclean. And they actually have to go through a process to, to sort of be restored to cleanliness, and that includes being, going to a priest, making sure they, don't, they haven't contracted leprosy. Like, they have to go through this whole thing. But notice that when Jesus touches the unclean leper, he doesn't become unclean. He makes the leper clean. Friend, your sin has made you unclean. And I, I know you feel it deep inside in those quiet moments of failure. And I just want to tell you, Jesus is not put off by your failure. He's not worried that you will infect him. He stands ready and willing to reach out and to make you clean. He can heal you and he can restore what sin like leprosy has damaged. All you need to do is ask him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And brothers and sisters, we have this kind of Savior. 
One who moves toward the overlooked and ostracized. One who enters the filth and muck of sin and brings wholeness and health. I just want you to know this. Your sin and struggles don't repel Jesus. He moves toward you in compassion. So if you're here and you're struggling with sin and you wonder if there's any hope, if you keep failing and wonder if Jesus loves you, remember he reaches out and touches the untouchable. He makes the unclean clean. One of the defining characteristics from Christianity from the very beginning is love for the weak and lonely. Love for the unimpressive. So I want you to hear what one early critic of Christianity wrote. So this was an early critic who was not a Christian, and he was actually writing a letter blasting Christianity, and he said this, their aim is to convince only worthless and contemptible people, idiots, slaves, poor women, and children. These are the only ones they manage to turn into believers. Aren't you thankful that worthless and contemptible people, idiots, slaves, poor women, and children like us matter to Jesus? He was wrong that these are the only ones who come to Jesus, but he was right that these are the kinds of people Jesus and Jesus' people care for. People who no one else noticed matter to the church. Redeemer, we need to be this kind of church. The kind of church that moves toward the lepers in our community. Who in Fuquay is desperate and alone. Who is considered unimpressive and unimportant? Who needs a human touch? This is who we need to serve. Like even as we prepare to build a building, we need to pray this, God, make this a place that's not comfortable for us, but welcoming for those who feel unloved and overlooked in our community. Are there neighbors who we can love who have no one else to love them? Where are the abused and afflicted who we can embrace? See, nothing is more like Jesus than when we move to a person in love who expects us to shrink back from them in disgust. Jesus does that with this leper, and he commands him to go to the temple, begin the process of being restored to his family. Verses 43 and 44. Then he tells him to, he says, and be quiet about what happened. Don't tell anyone. I'm not sure why Jesus says this. It's likely because there was such a misunderstanding of him as Messiah. And so hearing about a miracle without hearing his teaching could cause further confusion. But we're not quite sure. He tells him, don't tell anyone. And the leper, he disobeys in just obvious ways. He can't help himself. Look what he does. Verse 45 says he went out and began to proclaim it widely and to spread the news with the result that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly but he was out in deserted places and they came to him from everywhere. The glory and grace of Jesus are so amazing that he can't not talk about it. He has to tell others. What does he tell them? We're not told. What do you think? you think it has something to do with the one who loves the unlovable? The one who touches the unclean and makes them clean? An old Puritan pastor, Thomas Goodwin, wrote, Christ is love covered over with flesh. Christ is love covered over with flesh. So in this chapter, we've seen a lot of things about Jesus. We've seen his power and His authority as he defeats Satan, as he casts out demons. His majesty we saw as he's recognized as the Son of God, the Messiah, and he does victory and he wins. We see his deity and his humanity, but I think most of all we see his love. That he is love covered over in flesh. We see his love through the invitation he makes to sinners to repent and be saved. We see his love in freeing a man from the demonic forces which held him captive. We see his love in making the fever depart and restoring a woman's strength. We see his love when he reaches out and touches the unclean leper and gives him a new future. We see his love when he enters the water in the place of sinners and he comes out so that we can hear the Father call us beloved and delight in us. 
So there's a song, a little chorus I've sung since I was a little kid. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. And the chorus, right? Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. I have been singing that since I was a little kid, and I still don't really believe it. I mean, I want to believe it. I believe it now a little more than I did then, but I, I think I'm like the child who nods his head and rolls his eyes and says, I know every night when his mom tucks him into bed, kisses him on the forehead and says, I love you. I know, mom. I mean, I, I know Jesus loves me, but I don't really know it. I don't understand at all the height and depth and width and breadth of his love. And I guess, I'm guessing I'm not alone. Maybe you feel the same way. And so listen, we're going to keep looking at Jesus. We're going to fix our eyes on him. We're going to ask for strength to comprehend his love for us. Together we're going to study his word and listen to his voice And we will do so because though our understanding of his love is narrow and limited, we are convinced of this. There is no one like him. Will you pray with me? Father, help us to believe this. To truly believe that you love us. That your love is displayed to us covered in flesh in your son, Jesus Christ. I think of maybe the person who feels a bit like that leper today, who feels cut off, who feels unclean, who feels without hope. May the love of Jesus become real to them today. I pray for my brothers and sisters that as we leave today and as we go throughout our week, that we will wake up each morning reminding ourselves and hearing your voice saying, you are my dearly, deeply beloved children, and I am pleased with you today. May we truly believe that because of Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.